Hello, friends. This is your other friend, Christopher Lee. You may remember me from such films as Oh My, The Vampire and Swingy Sorty Guys. But today I just need to stop by to say hello to Brendan and to Jason and to thank them for allowing such august people as myself and Alistair Sim and, and many of the other actors that are on this list. But there's one in particular that I need to say something to, and uh, that is to Alec Guinness, who I must say that he can go sit on a pole and fuck himself cordially. I do not like the man, I do not like what he stands for, and I need to take a stand here today that you should honor him in any way for his work in any film series, especially that of the Star Wars. Mr. Lee, may I ask you a question? Yes, you may have one question. Okay. Is it because you were in the other Star Wars films? I don't know what you're talking about. I've never been in any movie. Okay. That's all, that's all I got. Thank you. Anyways, thank you for enjoying my movie, The Wicker Man. Goodbye. Another, another very contentious introduction it's been a while since we've had a nice like just hey this is a podcast well we tend to two nice fellas i think we tend to rouse people's anger when we put them through the uh, the rules that they have to follow when they come here Uh, they don't tend to like it especially being dead because they're not used to following uh, earthly rules let alone uh, mortal rules do you think it's because our assistant is rob schneider it might be we might have to have a talk with him do you think people feel like he's not worthy to do this kind I of thing? I think they get more annoyed that he's just constantly sitting there going, make it copies, remember? <laughs> yeah, he's always referencing his uh, his 90s SNL characters. And, and that specifically. like, I'm, Never once have I ever heard him go, you can do it. I was going to say, once. yeah, but name me another Rob Schneider SNL character. Mm. Sensitive naked guy? Did he play a monkey one time? No, that was... That's Chris Kattan. Chris Kattan, right. Yeah, I mean, where's the love for the animal? Where's the love for Deuce Bigelow? European gigolo. You know, the one thing we can remember about the animals is that it co-starred uh, Colleen, who was um, a contest uh, contestant from Survivor. Not even a winner. Not even a winner, but she was the hottest one on there. Hey, Colleen. And you know what? As far as acting goes, she was on Survivor. That's right. Absolutely. But they we're not talking couldn't about... get Richard Hatch. <laughs> he was too or, busy. Or that really uh, homophobic military dude. Oh, Rudy. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> I watched that whole season. I was to say, you remember a lot. I do remember uh, Richard Hatch. So. I, 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 that was the only season of Survivor I watched. I tried to watch the second season. It was super boring. Right out of the gate. Yeah, because there was no military dude and an openly gay dude being friends. And Jervis, the black guy, he was awesome. Yeah. Because uh, they had one. You gotta have one. Unless they had another black person there and I just forgot, which I feel bad if that's the case. But I'm pretty sure Jervis was the only only black dude there. Well, we're gonna save this for our Survivor cast. Alright. Uh, because this is not about Survivor, Jason. No. This is a podcast called For Screen and Country. And this podcast, myself, Brendan. And myself, Jason. <laughs> yes, there's a weird way to introduce myself. I understand that. We're just going to roll with the punches. Let's do it. We take a look at the British Film Institute Top 100 list of all time. All time. As curated in 1999, the year of our Lord, the year when we partied, etc. Yeah, Prince uh, is a great big fan. Absolutely. Uh, by the august members of the British Film Institute. Yes. No, no doubt a bunch of old white men. Uh, I, maybe they've diversified since then. I don't know. They don't call me anymore. Well, you need to stop leaving angry voicemails uh, in different languages. I'm still mad about the English patient. I'm sorry. Okay, I forgive you. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, we are. So we're going to talk. So we every week we break down a movie off this top 100 list, and this week we have arrived at a movie that is 
pretty high up the list. We, we are going to talk about in a moment here, uh, number 26 on the list, which is The Crying Game. From 1992. 1992. So it's like, in terms of this list, fairly modern mm-hmm. one. But before we do that, Jason, we need to talk about... Hot coins? <laughs> no, we are done with the pod coins. But I have so many pod coins. Jason, you can cash the, you can totally go to like a money mart or something. Can I buy crypto with them? Sure. Awesome. You can you can turn turn them in at Western Union. Uh, I believe the currency exchange is one pod coin per. That's a big relief. One pod coin to point zero zero three pennies. Well, thank God because I put my entire life savings into pod coin, Brendan, because of you. Oh boy, <laughs> this is going to be, we're going to need a few minutes to uh, sort this out. This could be a bit tense today, folks, but get ready. <laughs> Jason is living in a van down by the river. <laughs> um, but yeah, so before we talk about the crying game, ladies and gentlemen, we need to read some comments from last film we did, last week's film, The Wicker Man. It's about a man from Wikipedia. Yes. And what, no, let's just get into this. What a, what a, what a creepy fucking movie, eh, Brendan? <laughs> was yeah well let's see what they have to say the landlord's daughter the people so sharon horwat is our first comment here that's right? a name i remember that I seems familiar i thought you were gonna tune alan guinness there no no uh, well it has been a long that's, time that's a name i see every week every other week every other week so she says that i wrote this because this is one of the few dissenting comments there's a lot of there's a lot of compliments here. we pride ourselves here brendan on being fair and balanced that's right just like my favorite news channel MSNBC. Oh, I thought you were going to say, uh, what's, what's that fucking, oh, it, uh, uh, One News America or American News Freedom, that whatever sounds, that fucking um, Trump propaganda American network. News Freedom, something that sounds like that. sounds terrible. It's something like that. This episode today is brought to you by Breitbart. Mm. <laughs> Check out Ben Shapiro's newest article where he masturbates into a, uh, I don't know, uh, uh, nope, not saying that, um... Sharon Horwath says about The Wicker Man, I wasn't a huge fan, but I get the appeal, and I do love the ending. And I do love this song a lot. And she's referring to, actually, a song that was in one of the scenes that got cut from our version, Jason. Mm -hmm. It was called Gently Johnny. And the scene, I actually finally watched it to see what we missed from the movie. It's an early scene where instead of Willow doing that dance that she does to kind of seduce uh, our main character, she is met outside by Lord Summer Isle, Christopher Lee, who makes an appearance very early in the, in this version of the movie, yeah. and brings her a young man to deflower. So Ooh. she basically, uh, we find out one of her jobs in the village is to take everyone's virginity. Well, you know, it's a living, right? <laughs> it's a living! <laughs> uh, so Christian Zafiroglu, Good, I think. That's an, that's my attempt. It's a cool name. I feel like you just do it once, go do it, read it quick, and then hope for the best. Yep. <laughs> uh, so tell me if I got that wrong. Uh, it says, this is the rare, essential horror suspense film from the 70s that holds up especially well. There's a creeping tension throughout. From the start, you sense something's up. I understand the policeman's point of view entirely, yet also feel his devout rel- religiosity seems too intense. Then, as the story was revealed, I was at a loss to know who I should be supporting or believing. Christopher Lee believed this to be one of his favorite movies he ever worked in, which we talked about last week. Mm-hmm. His energy and charisma as the delusional Lord Summer Isle radiate. And Edward Woodward, which is my favorite new name to say, by the way, oh, Jason, absolutely. Uh, brought simmering rage on the edge of explosion to the sergeant on the case. Even in his seemingly calmer moments, he's on the verge of volcanic action. Damn straight. Yes, and, and it's funny, uh, I, while he while we were going through the comment here, the, the creeping tension throughout line, I didn't think of this last week, but in a way this movie kind of reminds me of something like Red State, where there's just this creeping dread throughout the entire picture of like, the, the just there's this 
un, unmitigatable sense that shit is going to go bad. Yeah. No matter what happens, no matter what's going on, everything just feels off. Because <laughs> most of the movie, most of the Wicker Man is build up. Mm. There's not a lot of like, there's not a lot of jump scares. There's no, there's, I would say there's almost no gore. I don't think there's any. No, if uh, if this movie was a hand job, it's 95% stroking. I guess it's really all hand jobs, really, because I mean, you're not gonna if if you're doing a hand job and it's like 33 percent of your entire hand job experience is coming, then a congratulations, and b maybe check out uh, a doctor. <laughs> like check out a doctor. Yes, like, but this but this movie's all stroke, and then the 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 blow at the end, and then it's done. Like this this movie is a cinematic horror hand job. Are you saying check out a doctor? Like check him out. Yeah, check him out, but then ask him about the the massive amount of uh, 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 come. Come, I mean, I was gonna. I was trying to think of a more classy sounding word, like, but semen's too medical, and sperm. Spooge is too teenage. Uh, sperm. Yeah, but there's more to it than just sperm, Brendan. Okay, I don't know. Let's just read another comment. All right, I'll think about it. Maybe we'll come back to it. So Dylan White says it's great, but I think it suffers because everyone talks about how great it is. I definitely expected something different the first time I watched it. I agree with the second part of that. I yeah. didn't. I didn't expect what I got. I didn't know it was going to be a musical for the first like <laughs> thirty-five minutes or so. Yeah, no, I didn't know what to expect either because I'd, I'd heard of this movie before. Obviously, it's been around for a long time, and I knew that there was the remake that it was a bit infamous in its own right. But mm. you know, I didn't really have any idea what it was about. I knew there was a Wicker Man in it. That's it. I thought, oh, is it about like a music festival? Is it like Burning Man? Is that where Burning Man got the idea? I had seen the remake, so I expected something sort of similar to that, but I also figured like they changed a lot. Mm -hmm. I was surprised by the stuff they didn't change. Yeah. And I was surprised. I was very surprised by the stuff that was different, which is all the music. The the, the remake is not music at all. Oh, that was going to be my question. Did Nicolas Cage sing any songs? Unfortunately not. (laughs) I think that's that that film's biggest flaw. But we'll talk about it in the future, of course. Uh, 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 Catherine Mayhew says Midsummer owes a pile of debt to this movie, and I'm going to assume she's right because I have not seen Midsummer. Yeah. Well, I brought that up last week because I I did see Midsummer, and that feels like the Wicker Man remake that we deserved, not the one we got. <laughs> right, exactly. So another name I recognize here, Adam Pellman. He says excellent and supremely unnerving film for the many reasons already mentioned above. The remake is a crime against humanity. Side note, I went to a concert in 2007 to see The Swell Season, a folk rock duo featuring two leads from the wonderful film Once. Okay. And they played a couple of songs from this film. It was pretty great. That would be a crazy thing to hear. So now, after falling slowly, we are going to perform The Landlord's Daughter. (laughs) Wow. Just suddenly to hear that break out and then to be standing there. Because in me, I'd be like... That song's really familiar. Why do I know that song? And then I'd pull out like Spotify and like Google it or something and then just be like, oh my God. And then I would explode. (laughs) Katya, I'm going to say Katya. Katya Yount says, I think the point of the film was an ironic flip of Christian terror on pagan cultures through global history. That this man, who is a figure of authority on the mainland as a police officer, is found to be a source of ridicule on Summer Isle. It's about how this repressed patriarchal man who believes that he can outwit the pagan citizens and their leader is manipulated into his own undoing. Or it could be read that it's a cruel inversion of a Christian who followed Christ, a man who died for humanity, finds himself dying for the crops of Summer Isle. Oh, the irony. That's a pretty good, inter- it's a pretty good interpretation. Yeah. That's why I wrote that one down. That's a good yeah, one. Yeah, no, that is a good one. Thank uh, you, Katya, first-time commenter. Yeah, shit. Uh, if that's what you're bringing to the table, you better keep commenting. Yeah, you watch out, Adam Pellman. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Katya's coming for you. 
So, uh, next comment, Bob McClellan. McClennan? McClennan? McLennan. Bob McLennan, sorry. We're, <laughs> I'm from Nova Scotia. I assumed it was McClellan, but it could easily be McLennan. There's a lot of mix and max in Nova Scotia. I think I've mentioned before, in school, there was a specific grouping. You had your A to M, and then your Mac and mix, and then your N to Z. That's how we did it. A group of friends and I went to see this right around this time of year. Only two of us, myself included, had seen it before, so it was fun to watch the others' reactions. One of the people in the group was a woman I'd invited in an implied, not really a date, but let's go to a movie and see what happens scenario. He was trying to get a little action, I see. Mm -hmm. And she was pretty visibly put off by the nudity and sexually explicit scenes. Maybe a poor choice, I don't know, right out of the gate. Not offended by any means, but it definitely wasn't what she was expecting, and she went home almost immediately afterward. Fun postscript, four years later, I ended up marrying a different woman from that same group. Definitely the right call. Yeah, that, I don't know. I can think of a few movies that maybe are a worse choice, like Funny Games. Yeah, well, I mean, sure. sure. Or like Gone. Just straight up torture porn. It's maybe bad. <laughs> maybe, maybe Gone Girl is a bad choice to show on a first date. Yeah, absolutely. Um, hey, congrats, though. Apparently you uh, chose the right ones. So you there did you go. chose right. Good stuff. Uh, but you didn't mention whether this particular person liked the movie or not. I'm sure it was my Bob, let us know. Bob, let us know that, uh, that she likes The Wicker Man and that you two are, are truly compatible. Yeah, Bob, hit us up. Hit us up on the Facebook. Hit us up on the Twitter. Let us know. We want to know what your your you know your wife, wife your wife's reaction is was to the Wicker Man. And while you're at it, could you ask her what she thinks of the English patient? <laughs> yes, and if it's anything but pure hatred, Bob, you can refrain from commenting in future. That's right. I'm just kidding. You're great. <laughs> Thank you for your comment. Uh, Cynthia Marie says, "I first saw this movie in a cabin in the woods." Very late at night, with a fire going in the fireplace. If there's any way you can replicate this viewing experience, I highly recommend. I love this film. It's a strange mix of things, and is often surprising and jarring for this reason, but it left me thinking about it for days afterwards. It is a movie that sticks with you. It, Again, it, especially in this situation of being in a, yeah. a, a fucking Evil Dead cabin in the woods, watching this, I assume, on VHS... On a very old TV and a top-loading VCR. It's uh, it's stuck in my craw a little bit since yeah. then. I, I I haven't forgotten a lot of it. No, it's it's, it's a fascinating movie. Those songs are like those songs were legitimately <laughs> stuck in my head for days afterwards. That's the point, Brennan, to drive you the a little mad. Lord's daughter, daughter, you'll never know another. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Last comment. Last comment. Derek Herzog, <gasps> Berner's son. We have cinematic. Royalty, I guess, oh Prince Prince God. Prince Derek Herzog says... I have says, so many questions. Truly, truly one of the guides. Why films like Eden Lake, to some extent, and The Kill List seek so much to emulate its style and feeling? It's one like Rosemary's Baby and I'd argue Funny Games, where homages, fairly direct rip-offs, have been super common in the last ten years. I hadn't really seen anything like it when I saw it at 19, 15 years ago. It might not seem as mind-blowing if you've seen its antecedents. Gives me a similar feeling to Straw Dogs and Wake and Fright with its you-ain't-from-around-here-boy small-town strangeness. But it goes somewhat bleaker. Clearly influenced a few of Clive Barker's shorter works. Yeah, it's amazing. And I promise, Derek, if you comment again, that's the last time I will do that. I just, I had to get it out of my now system. Now he's never going to comment. He wants to hear that every time. <laughs> But yeah, no, those uh, those movies. Uh, be fair, I'm you know I, I like movies. I haven't seen uh, a lot of movies. I mean, I've seen a good amount of movies in my life. That's to be fair. But I haven't seen any of the ones he mentioned. I haven't seen Straw Dogs. I haven't seen Wake and Fright. I haven't seen Funny Games. Probably don't want to, uh, just because I'm not into the whole torture porn thing. It's not. It's not what, what quite what you think. But uh, Rosemary's Baby, I'd watch that. So now that we've come to the end of the comments, it's time. It's time to do a little comparison. Yes. It's time to compare this film to the American Film Institute list. 
top oh. 100. Uh, it's equivalent. Like we do every time. Yes. And it's equivalent on the AFI. So number 96 is the Wicker Man. And on the AFI, number 96 is actually a pretty groundbreaking movie. Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing. Oh, I've not seen it. Really? Yeah. Wow. I've seen Bamboozled. That's a great movie. Never have I met someone who's seen a Spike Lee film, but it's not Do the Right Thing. I, I mean, it's on my list. But, okay, so you're, I guess you're going to have to go with The Wicker Man by default. I am, as much as I enjoyed The Wicker Man, I'd have to give it to Do the Right Thing. It's kind of a revolutionary movie. The fact that it's 96 on the AFI is kind of disgusting. Well, and I, I have a lot of love for any movie that is set during the course of one day. <laughs> like, Dazed and Confused is one of my favorite movies. Uh, and Do the Right Thing is not Dazed and Confused. It's quite different from Dazed and Confused. But the idea I mean, of, like... the same movie. Well, in, the sense that there's, in the sense that there's a bunch of characters hanging out and... Uh, I think the main difference is in Do the Right Thing, something happens. Yeah. Yeah. In Days to Confuse, the only thing that happens is they all go to a party, basically. Well, that's, that's Richard Linklater. Yeah, and, and I love Richard Linklater. Don't get me wrong. But that's most of his movies. Yeah. Oh, no, absolutely. Stuff doesn't really happen. Doesn't need to. That's the thing. Well, with that conversation all wrapped up, all right. we should talk about this week's film. We're going to tell you all you need to know about The Crying Game. With that strange combination of Boy George's voice and that terrible early 90s Casio keyboard sound, we are introduced to 1992's The Crying Game. Listen, it's the only version I could find <laughs> played at the top of the show. Uh, his vocals are good. Yeah, no, Boy, Boy George's a great singer. Nothing against him. The, uh, the uh, instrumental stuff is another topic altogether. But yes, we're talking about The Crying Game. We should mention right now, this is our second, I believe, of two. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's another one on this list. I may be wrong, but I'm pretty sure this is the second of two Neil Jordan movies on this list. The last one we've already covered, uh, Mona Lisa, which we both liked a great deal. Yes, starring Super Mario himself. uh, Kathy Tyson. Kathy Tyson. (laughs) And Bob Hoskins. Uh, Cicely Tyson's uh, niece, Bob Hoskins. But yeah, we covered that one, and now we're covering The Crying Game. Let's go through the cast here, Jason, real, real quick here. We got Stephen Rhea, who we uh, saw previously in Life is Sweet. As Patsy, the As, drunk friend. Yeah, here he plays the lead role, uh, Fergus. Fergus. We have uh, Jay Davidson playing Dill. Uh, very, which we'll talk a lot about this, obviously. Jay Davidson's expansive film career will be discussed. Yes, this and Stargate. Yep. <laughs> uh, we have uh, Miranda Richardson playing Jude. We have Forrest Whitaker playing Jody. Uh, Adrian Dunbar as Maguire. Uh, Tony Slattery as Devereaux. Yes. These are the other two um, IRA members. And of course, our old friend, Jim Broadbent. As Cole. Cole the bartender. And I'm going to say right out of the gate, because it was going to come up later when he shows up briefly, but Tony Slattery is one of my favorite British comedic uh, guys. I came to know him on the British Whose Line Is It Anyway? And he was always one of the funniest people on there. And unfortunately, he's had a bit of a tragic story over the last 20 years. He was 
addicted to cocaine, if it wasn't obvious, uh, and alcohol, and he's had a rough go of it. Uh, but at the same time, Tony, if you're out there, I don't know why you're listening to this. You were the fucking best, and I love you, and I hope you're doing well. So to you, Tony Slattery, I salute you. And thank you for being in this movie and bringing joy to my face when I saw you. And thank you for being a friend. Traveled up and down the road again? Sure. I mean, kind of. Hmm. Well, Jason, that cast aside, um, let, why don't you just uh, set us up a little here? Because we're going back to kind of a thing, I think we briefly, you mentioned uh, before we were started recording, we kind of went to this area when we talked about My Left Foot. Mm-hmm. Not My Left Foot, but the movie, the My movie. Left Foot. Yes. The Christy Brown story. Starring history's greatest monster, Daniel Day Lewis. <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to say, uh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we're going, kind of going back to this kind of time period. So tell us, kind of set us up in the world. Where are we at this point, Jason? The, so I have to assume that this movie's contemporary. I got no it, yeah, indication it that it was a historical It takes place picture. in 1992. So 1992, sure. this is late in uh, the period, which is known in Irish history as the Troubles, uh, which began in the late 60s and was a follow-on from the tensions between the British and Irish that had existed for a very long time. Obviously, we know the Easter Rebellion, or the Easter Rising, I guess it's called, in 1916, then followed by the Irish War of Independence, and then followed by the Irish Civil War. Um, at the end of the Irish Civil War, uh, you had... Um, you, well, during the Irish Civil War, you had two main groups that were fighting. You had the, the Irish National Army, which was the, um, the official pro-treaty a regular army of the Free State of Ireland, or the Free Irish State, I guess it was called. Mm, free Irish State. Mm-hmm. And delicious. And But then you also had the Irish Republican Army, which was the the military group that was, uh, the name of the military group that participated in the Easter Rising and then fought against the British during the Irish War of Rebellion, or whatever you want to call it. They didn't like the, Brit- the Brits being in Ireland, right? No. They didn't want them to take over? No, well, because the British had basically been there a long time, and the British were partially responsible for the, uh, well, partially, depending on who you ask, probably fully, but the Irish potato famine in the mid-1800s, which killed millions of Irish people. Uh, it mm-hmm. was a question of they didn't have enough food, but there was enough food on the island to feed everybody, but because of commerce, there was no food to feed the Irish poor because it was all being shipped away. So the, the Irish have had a long, bloody history with the British and a good reason to resent them. So anyways, the, after the Irish independence, um, the treaty stipulated that one part of Ireland, the northern six counties of Ireland, would remain as a part of the UK. And this has been a sticking point ever since. Now, in the 1960s, this kind of picked up again because there was concern from the Catholic minority about their position in the society. Um, I mean, uh, uh, various Protestant military groups, uh, Ulster Volunteers, paramilitary groups and such formed. Uh, You had the Royal Irish Constabulary, which was a a notoriously awful police force that brutalized uh, Irish Catholics and others. Um, And then you had the creation of, of, at the time, the Provisional Irish Republican Army, which essentially was a new paramilitary version of the old Irish Republican Army. Uh, but it, rather than being like a, a fighting force in the traditional sense, it operated more like a terrorist organization than that it was, because it did car bombings and assassinations and things like that. And over the years, there have been many splinter groups. There's the real IRA. There's the new IRA. There's the, the CIRA. IRA on the block. CRA. Yeah, all sorts of... And, CIA. And still a few of them operating today. Now... Uh, this this takes place in 1992, so it's six years before what was known as what is known as the Good Friday Agreement, which finally led a peace process and opened the Irish border and allowed um, Northern Irish and Irish to freely mix and helped a lot with you know reducing any sort of terrorist attacks. Now there's been a few incidents since then, but for the most part it's been pretty quiet. 
Now, that might change in the near future, Brendan, because of something called Brexit, uh, because there is the possibility of a return of a hard border between Northern Ireland and Southern Ireland, and that could be a big problem. But that's a bigger issue that is well beyond this podcast. You've got a little bit of context now, folks. Let's dive in to this movie and what it's about. So... I'm going to say right off the bat, Yes, uh, this was not my first time watching this. I had watched this one time, like a long time ago, because I always wanted to know what it was. Yes. What it was, or... And I got to say, the first time I watched this, I thought it was just about, you know, the thing that we'll get to, the, yeah. the twist of it all. The, 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 the twist of it all is literally the only thing I have known about this movie since, you know, the movie came out, because it was such a big deal in pop culture, but that was the only thing that really made waves out of it. I mean, it did win Best Picture, and we'll talk about it. Uh, no. End. Didn't it? No. Are you sure? Mm-hmm. I mean, skipping to that, fine. Uh, Unforgiven is the movie that wins that year. Okay. For Best Picture. But we'll get to the award stuff later. But I swear that movie, I thought that movie won Best Picture. That was crazy. No. Uh, nope. Did win some other awards, but we'll talk about that. So, Jody, played by Forrest Whitaker. Forrest Whitaker. Interestingly, now that I mention his name, you got to understand, this movie contains three actors from three of my favorite kind of bad movies. Um, we have Forrest Whitaker from Battlefield Earth. Mm-hmm. We have Jim Broadbent from The Avengers. Mm-hmm. And we have Jay Davidson from Stargate. So we have quite a... Now, Stargate, to be fair, is not as bad as those other two movies, but it's also not great. So Jody, Forrest Whitaker, he's just a British soldier in Northern Ireland looking for a good time at the fairgrounds. And he's got Jude. And he's got Jude with him. He's having a wonderful time with her. She's a, a, a cute little blonde that he recently met, and he thinks he's going to get some action out of this deal. So they kind of flirt around and have a good time, but what he doesn't know, Brendan, is that he's being followed. Mm-hmm. By some By fellas. Patsy. By Patty's? Patsy. Racist? No, oh. by Patsy from, from Life is Sweet. That's right, from Patsy. He's drunkenly following him around because he's Irish. After a fa- Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to be racist. He just he just stumbled into the he IRA. He stumbled into the IRA. Oh, I got some of my Oh, it now. seems like a way to make some money. <laughs> I got some of my now. <laughs> After a failed attempt to take Jude in an inconveniently placed tent, she wasn't down for fucking there, the lovebirds make their way to the best of fucking spots down by the dirty river. Uh, can I say what she was down for, though? Holding his hand while he pissed. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> She's just that kind of girl. <laughs> As Jody makes a move, uh, a gun is shoved in his face and a bag is placed over his head and two men hurry him away to a waiting car. So as I expressed earlier, and this is 1992, the troubles are still going on. These folks are members of the Provisional Irish Republican Army, Mm. or the PIRA. Explain to me one thing, because Fergus introduces this early on, is that he's a volunteer. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? means that he is of their, of his own volition. I think that's what they called people who joined up with the IRA as volunteers. So there are people with the IRA that did not choose to be No, I mean, I don't think that, I don't think that they were like uh, Shanghaiing people into their service. Okay. Uh, But I think it goes back to, I think it's a historical reference to the old days, to the Easter Rising and the volunteers then. So this is not ISIS. No, this is not ISIS. They, uh, (laughs) the Irish are many things, but they were not like forcing people into their ranks. And also, you generally, you know, they were they were Catholic, so if you weren't Catholic, they didn't have any interest in you. So Jody's captured by these guys. They're members of the PIRA, and their plan is that they want to, like many, like many times in history, they want to exchange him for IRA prisoners that are being held by the British government. Uh, but they, of course, have to make a deadline that if he's not retrieved in three days, then that's it. He's done. He's dead. And that's when Forrest becomes the last king of Scotland. Brendan's fired from the podcast. 
Here's your papers. I know get why Brendan was <laughs> fired from the podcast. Brendan, you're fired from your own podcast. Now go sit in your own living room while I finish this thing. And then you can edit it and post it. <laughs> Wait a second. I'm fired from the talent portion only? <laughs> only from the end. No, we, we, you're, you're, too, you're too important on the tech end. Aww. So while there, he successfully gets to know the man guarding him, one Irish fella named Fergus. Stephen Rhea. Stephen Rhea, our old buddy. So, but Jody manages to kind of form a bit of a bond with Fergus. He manages to kind of get inside his head. He first convinces him to remove the mask so he could breathe better, and Fergus has to go ask for permission. And they basically tell him, he's like, well, he'll see your face. He's like, bah, he's already seen my face. And it's like, okay, but he can only see your face. Yeah, so, if anyone else comes in the room, put that hood back on. So well, he's seen, he's seen uh, Jude. He's seen Jude as well. He obviously knows who she is. But so he takes off the hood and lets him breathe, and he's very appreciative of that. Uh, and then he starts talking about the nature of the Irish people. <laughs> he's like, oh, yeah. it's not in your nature. And he's like, what are you talking about? He's like, you don't know anything about me. He's like, you yeah, know, but you're people. You're going to have to do it, aren't you? Do what? Kill me. What makes you think that? You're not going to let that guy out. And you're going to have to kill me. They let him out. You want to bet? I'm not a gambling man. And even if they do, they... You can't just let me loose. Why can't we? Not your nature. What do you know about my nature? I'm talking about your people, not you. What the fuck do you know about my people? Only that you're all tough, undeluded motherfuckers, and it's not your nature to let me go! Shut the fuck up, would you? And then he proceeds, and then ironically, he proceeds to talk about the racism that he as a black man faced in being deployed to Ireland. Right. Uh, the only place, uh, in his words, where you could be called an N-word to the face, and mm-hmm. uh, it was fine. Go back to your banana tree. Yeah, exactly. And he's like, I'm from Tottenham, England. I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not from the jungle. Like, and they don't know me. Yeah. Well, it's, you know what, it, that actually, now that you mention that, it kind of reminds me of the scene in uh, A Taste of Honey, where uh, she kind of... She's like, oh, you're from Africa. You're from Africa yeah. to her, he's like, like, no, I'm from to, Ipswich. To her sailor. And he's <laughs> like, I'm from England. Like, yeah, I'm from, I'm from <laughs> like, Ipswich. Like, what are you Leave me alone. Um, while we're on the subject of this, while they're starting to bond, I do have a clip I want to play here of, uh, this is what he, this is the movie, yeah. I feel like, right here, where he tells him the story of the scorpion and the frog. Yes, which, if, which I'm sure if you've watched any TV in the past 25 years, you've heard this at some point. Two types focused. The scorpion... And the frog. Ever heard of him? A scorpion wants to cross the river, but he can't swim. Goes to a frog, who can, and asks for a ride. Frog says, I'll give you a ride on my back. You'll go and sting me. Scorpion replies, It would not be in my interest to sting you, since I'll be on your back, we both would drown. Frog thinks about his logic for a while and accepts the deal. Takes the scorpion on his back, braves the waters, halfway over feels a burning spear in his side and realizes the scorpion has stung him after all. And as they both sink beneath the waves, a frog cries out, why did you sting me, Mr. Scorpion? But now we both will drown. Scorpion replies. I can't help it. It's in my nature. 
What's that supposed to mean? Means what it says. A scorpion does what is in its nature. See, and I, I personally have never liked that parallel or that parable because I find it kind of racist, like in the sense that 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 you you are what you are, and that's what you are, and you do what's in your okay. nature that you can't change yourself. You just are what you are, and I think that that's a terrible approach to, to say think that people can't change who they are in some way if they want to. See, I read it a little differently. I thought that whole parable was him saying, dis- "Well, yeah, I know, I see, I see what you're saying yeah, for yeah. sure." But um, I read it as like, I read it as like, um, despite who you pretend to be, mm. like he's saying with Fergus is with the IRA, which are obviously known as kind of a violent organization, yeah. obviously, um, your true inner nature will still come through. Mm. So even if you say like, oh, I'm a gang member, I'm this, yeah. I'm that, if you're a good person at heart, yeah. You're a good person at heart, no matter who you try to be. And I, I see, think I see what you're saying. I think that's the point they're trying to make. I definitely see what you're saying. Well, the the, the, the way you say it makes sense within the context of the film and where right. it goes, absolutely. So, right. I, so I think you have a point there. But that's just how I read it, was the idea that you can't change who you are is ridiculous. You can if you want to, and it has to be because you want to. It's very hard to change your nature, though. Yeah. I oh, absolutely. Say. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I can tell you that. I can definitely see what you're saying in terms of... Uh, in, in terms of the uh, the rate racial thing, mm. but I, I yeah I don't think the movie was using that meaning. No, but it just it's a weird thing to kind of come up across him then later talking about being called an N word and by mm. Irish people, you know. So yeah, Fergus is basically the only one who's nice to him out of all these captors. And I mean that's understandable because you know he's been captured for political purposes and he's obviously made some inroads with Fergus. Uh, but the rest of them don't seem to like him very much. Obviously Peter, who's kind of the the head guy there, he doesn't want to have his face seen. And uh, Jude, who's already had her face seen, she doesn't like him at all. And at one point, full-on fucking pistol whips him pretty brutally. Yeah. Uh, in a way that you don't often see in movies where it's like he clearly, she just fucking clocks him with this heavy-ass gun. And he's just... And he does not mince words with her. No, no he doesn't at all. <laughs> you, you're supposed to be a nice lady, you fucking bitch. Yeah, exactly. That's probably what I would say in a similar situation. <laughs> you're supposed to be a nice lady. But Fergus clearly comes to like Jody and is receptive when Jody makes a request of him that should anything happen to Fergus, should he die here, that he goes to uh, London and meets with his girlfriend, Dill, Mm -hmm. to kind of let her know what happened. Yeah. They also speak of cricket uh, because when he goes into his wallet to pull out the picture of Dill, he actually pulls out a picture. For some reason, Forrest Whitaker is keeping a picture of himself in cricketer's uh, clothes in his wallet. Sure. And it turns out he's a bowler and he's big into cricket. And likes it a lot, and they have a little bit of a chat about that. Uh, so, uh, recalling Douglas Adams, the deadline whooshes by, and Fergus takes Jody out to the woods to kill him. And in fact, Fergus, Fergus insisted that he do it. Mm-hmm. He'd be the one to do it, and Peter respected his uh, his commitment. To uh, that. Begrudgingly, but begrudgingly, yeah. but like understood like where he was coming from. Yeah. So he takes him out to the woods, and while they're out there, they have a chat, and oh. oh so before, I should mention too, I didn't mention it, it's not really relevant to the plot, but it's kind of an interesting scene of the bonding between them where he has to go out and piss. And he well, takes Well, I think it's a very important scene. I think it's an ahead. important scene for establishing kind of the relationship they have, like, and, and that Fergus is obviously willing to help him out because mm-hmm. he takes him out to piss and he has to unzip his pants and pull his dick out for him uh, and then hold his hand so that he can lean forward so he doesn't piss all over himself. Also, <laughs> just want to point this out, yeah. this is the second person he holds hands with while he's pissing. Mm-hmm. And... 
It's interesting because the fact that Fergus is able to do that to kind of move past this whole like, "Ew, don't touch your dick, it's gay." Yeah. Like the fact that he's able, to, he's able to move past that kind of gives you a glimpse Some into real him a little bit. Yeah. Oh, big uh, time for what comes later in the movie, folks. If you don't know this twenty-five-year-old twist. You don't know the twist in, in the crying game. game. There's gonna be a lot of that. So brace yourself, folks. <laughs> so, so in the woods. So he takes him out to the woods. He's gonna kill him, but he doesn't do it immediately. And Fergus tries to convince him to, you know, that he doesn't want to do this. And but he's like, well, I gotta. And he's like, well, I can run away right now, and you're not gonna shoot me. And he's like, yeah, I'm gonna. And he's like, no, no, you're not. And he fucking does. He fucking manages to get his things off. Forrest Whitaker's fucking fast, Forrest Whitaker, he's fast for a, a chubby dude. And <laughs> he just goes. And obviously, Fergus doesn't shoot him. No. Uh, so he kind of watches him run off. And he runs off. And just as he runs off and looks like he's away, he's immediately run down by a, a British APC out of nowhere. That's Just full-on clocks him. And then the next one actually <laughs> runs him over. Isn't that ironic that he was kind of killed by his own he people? He was killed by his own people. Absolutely. Yeah. Just as a, as a random accident. And so this indicates that the British army has shown up and they are raiding the facility. So Fergus gets the fuck out of there. He assumes that everybody's dead. So Fergus takes off and goes to his old man, his old friend Tommy's place. And he tells Tommy that he needs passage. Tommy doesn't ask him why, because he knows better. But he says, I need passage to the mainland. Mm-hmm. Or passage across the water, I think is the actual phrase. And so I'm he, looking for a land down under. Yeah. So he jumps on a boat and heads across to England, and he kind of disappears for a while because he's going to lay low and let the heat uh, come off. Right? And now his name is Jimmy. Now his name is Jimmy, and he's uh, Scottish. <laughs> Which I thought as I soon thought as he funny. said, as soon as he said, like he was, uh, they said he was going to go like quote unquote undercover as Scottish. I was like. Jason's going to have some things to say. <laughs> I just thought it was funny because he doesn't sound Scottish at all. No. And I think the only person in the movie that understands that is Cole, but we'll get there. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, he's he takes a job as a day laborer, and he's working at a uh, building that is actually right beside a cricket pitch. So that doesn't help for his, like, haunting memories of poor Jody. Or does he subconsciously want that job? Or maybe he does. Maybe he does because he wants to be reminded of it, you know? I mean, mm-hmm. it could be either. Uh, he clearly has some mixed feelings about the whole situation. So now he's in London. And among his tasks, uh, is he got to seek out Dill? Was this an RPG? <laughs> among tasks? his many quests, he's got to. He's got find, a quest log full of shit, but Dill is at the he's top. He's got to find Dill, find the three magic flutes. And and the odd thing is, is that he does find Dill, and actually just totally accidentally, he's literally just walking down the street and happens to glance in a hairdresser's shop. At the same time, I think that's where he told him that she worked. She yeah. Yeah, I think you mentioned that she worked at a hairdryer shop. And also so. that she liked to hang out at the Metro. At the Metro, which is yeah. close. Which is close. So yeah. he was wandering by and happened to see her. Yeah. And goes in and uh, tells her, even though they're closing, he's like, yeah, I want a haircut. And so she's like, okay. And so she cuts off his dirty terrorist mullet. And let's make no mistake about it. She is beautiful. Oh, absolutely stunning. A yeah. wonderful, wonderfully beautiful lady. Yeah, like, no, you can't miss her. Much like we talked about Mona Lisa. Yeah. Uh, last time. This is some time ago. But we talked about the character of Simone mm. in that in that movie, and th- this she looks identical to looks Simone. Very similar. Uh, like, clearly, Neil Jordan likes a drop of cream in his coffee. <laughs> That's what we have here. Like Jason and I said before this podcast, Neil Jordan obviously has a type. Absolutely, <laughs> uh, with these femme fatales, right? Mm. Um, so yeah, he goes in, he gets his terrorist mullet cut off, and he actually looks like a swinging '90s guy by the time he's done. Right. Um, and so they they exchange pleasantries, and she takes off, and he begins a pattern uh, of following her throughout the movie, because that's what guys that are in love with girls obviously do, is they follow them. Yeah, if the hottie and the naughty taught me anything. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and that's the movie that you should base all your uh, cinematic 
I bet ambition's you, on. you listeners, I bet you never thought I was going to reference the hottie and the naughty on a top 100 British film podcast. No, and now you know Brendan is a fan of How Did This Get Made. <laughs> <laughs> of What Were They Thinking, yes. Yes, absolutely. What Were They Thinking, nothing else. The top bad movie podcast, and there's right. no there's other There's no other ones other than this one, which is the best. <laughs> so after he begins this practice of stalking her and follows her through the streets to... Uh, the bar that Fergus had talked about, the Metro, the which Metro. is a lovely place, uh, goes in and sits down at the bar and orders a drink from our friend Jim Broadbent, playing Cole the bartender. And I would love to play this clip. Please do. Because this is wonderful. So, Because, I, I, well, number one, I adore Jim Broadbent. So any chance to see him in a movie and, and reunite it with his old pal Stephen Reeve from Life is Sweet. That's true. I yeah. never even thought about that. Absolutely. Totally different dynamic in this movie. <laughs> yep. But... Uh, yeah, so Jim Broadbent is the bartender, and they have this scene here that you're going to hear in a minute here with uh, Dill is across the bar in a kind of an awkward position where they can't really converse, but they yeah. could if they like talked loud enough. But she makes a point to relay her messages to Jim Broadbent, who then relays the message to him back and forth. He's the go-between. It's, it's quite entertaining, folks. He's the go-between. He's the go-between. Yeah, and absolutely. funny enough, he was also in the remake of The Go-Between. There you go. <laughs> but um, he does this back and forth thing, and I think it's mainly to start off by saying they, they start off very distant. Absolutely. And they have it like a so much so that they had literally have a channel between the two of them. Mm-hmm. So let's just listen a little bit to uh, this back and forth here, because I really like this. He gave me a look. Did he? Just cut his hair, you know. Yeah? So what do you think? Nice. There. He did it again. I saw that one. And what would you call that? That was a look. Ask him to ask me what I'm drinking. He wants to know. Do you want to know what she's drinking? A margarita. Now he can look. Ask him, does he like his hair cool? She wants to know, sir, do you like your hair? Tell her I'm very happy with it. He's Scottish, Carl. Scottish? Yeah. What'd he say? He agreed that he was. What do you think his name might be? I have no thoughts on the subject. Jimmy. Jimmy? Jimmy, that's what he said. Hi, Jimmy. Hi, Del. So, yeah, I, that's what I thought. Okay, so that's what I thought, too, was that um, when Jim Broadbent says, Scottish, no, I was just confirming, that's what he said. I got the thought, thought too, that he didn't really think he was Scottish. Oh, yeah, no, J- Jim Broadbent is a bartender in the classic British sense in that he knows what's going on. He knows that he knows everything that's going on. He knows he can see through all the bullshit. And he knows for he can just tell from t- listening to him talk. He's clearly not Scottish. Mm-hmm. Well, and did you notice, like, and the interesting thing about that scene is, like, they're going using him as the kind of go-between. Um, but then as soon as she kind of gets the vibe that... Like, he, or, he orders her the drink. Yeah. She gets the vibe that he's, like, you know, on the level. She finally says, oh, hi, Ferg. Uh, hi, Jimmy. Hi, and Jimmy. And he says, hi, Dale. And that's hi. their first real interaction. Although he says, uh, t- tell him to ask me what I'm drinking. And he says, what are you drinking? And she goes, margarita. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, they're, they're clearly there's a little bit of chemistry there. Um, yeah, they're in a, uh, so he, he trails her there. They have their conversation. And then he is interrupted by the... <laughs> 
by a cartoon scumbag named Dave, mm. who's uh, clearly in his 40s and has his hair slicked back and is wearing a tracksuit and gold chains and an earring. And he's like, oh, and she's like, and he's like, and then they leave him. Did you have the Sims uh, filter on? I might have. I might have watched this whole movie with a Simlish dub. Oh, God. <laughs> Do you remember the scene with the dialogue? I do not. No, I do not. Um, so, yeah, he basically drags her out of the bar. He's mad at her and whatever. And they go back to their place. And, of course, Fergus, uh, doing what he does, follows them mm-hmm. and sees their silhouette in the window. Okay. Going to the bone zone. Going to the bone zone. So he uh, is like, oh, I guess I'm going to go home. So he goes home. He falls asleep. I jerk off. Let's be real. He, he may, I'm assuming he must have. But at the point we see him, he's kind of half dreaming about uh, Jody. Uh, and having uh, Jody in his cricketing outfit. So, did you think seeing that shot of Jody kind of throwing the ball? Maybe this is too literal, but I almost think that's him going like, "She's yours now." She's yours. <laughs> uh, no, I, you know, I didn't think about that, but I see, I see where you're coming from. I, I maybe that was it. It's like, here's the ball, buddy. You run with it. Yeah, I don't know. That's how cricket works, right? Yeah, I, I don't <laughs> understand cricket. I'll tell you, folks. Uh, if if now if there are any British listeners and you understand cricket, I applaud you because you're clearly smarter than I am because I don't get cricket and I once tried to read a Globe and Mail uh, re- like like a summary of a cricket game and I don't think I understood like I understood every individual word but the combinations of them were baffling. And if you're gonna tweet that at us. Um Make sure to send it in 17 tweets. <laughs> if, if you want to tweet at us how cricket is played, please do. But I can assure you I have no interest in playing Don Bradman's Cricket, which is a, a video game. take. The Jai Bomb videos, great. Check out Jai Bomb, folks. They're great. They don't need us to fucking promote they them, They don't, Jason. but uh, I love them. And uh, tell Dan Record I said hi. Who, wait, who are you asking to say that? <laughs> Whoever's listening. I don't okay. care. Sure. <laughs> folks, there must be some crossover. Sure. So he watches them fuck for a bit and then leaves and goes home and has his dream. Uh, uh, next day at work, we briefly meet Fergus's boss, Devro, played by the inimitable Tony, Tony Slattery. Mm. So funny. Hello, I am Testicles. That is a line of his from Whose Line that sticks in my head, and I still laugh when I think about it. Justin McCollum, I know you're out there. You know Tony Slattery. You know how awesome he is. Tell the world for me. And Justin, on your mini truck I, trips. I've just got one thing to say to you, Justin. Do, 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 do. That's enough. That's all he gets. You're going to have to subscribe to our Patreon for more. Absolutely. So we get to meet uh, Tony Slattery. Uh, He's great in the little scene he is in, being a total dick of a boss. Mm -hmm. Um, So the next day, Dave drags her. uh, He follows her again. Sees a Dave drag her out of the bar, but he follows her this time and comes along and puts the boots to Dave. Uh, Dave tries something and he puts him on the ground and puts his boot on his neck and 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 uh, Dill is more than happy to accept his help and they threaten him and intimidate him and he runs away. And she says, "If you kiss me, it'll get him even more." Well, riled they, up. they they go back to his her place first. And yeah. they're standing on the stairways and he comes up and and this is the thing about Dave is that we, we we when we see him initially he's clearly like kind of this like stereotypical scumbag but he clearly is devoted to Dill. Like, yeah. It's clear that he really is in love with her. There's one shot yeah. in the bar when uh, later on Fergus is dancing with Dill yeah. and there's one shot of Dave and it's like a legitimate like sullen just sadness comes yeah, he, over him. Yeah, he really misses her. And it's like, 
but at the same time, you just saw him like kind of backhander. Yeah. So he's not a great guy. No, he's clearly not a great guy. He clearly doesn't know what to do with those feelings. But, but, but especially with the information that comes to light later, it puts him in a bit of a different light because he literally does love her. It seems to me that he literally is... is I mean, because we know later um, he goes to... Uh, Fergus goes to her apartment and Dave shows up again and she throws all his shit out the window. So clearly he had been there. Including murdering his goldfish. Including murdering his which goldfish. Which I was like, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of against you now. Well, let's, let's back up for a bit. We'll come okay, right so. back. So, so yeah, so they go, uh, Fergus takes her home. They share a kiss to piss Dave off. He gets pissed off and he takes off. Now, uh, they agree that they're going to go to dinner the next night. They go, they have a little bit of bite to eat, uh, and then they leave the restaurant, and Dave tries to run them down in his car. Mm-hmm. And and it's it's funny how Dill takes it. Like, Dill's just like, oh, fuck, fuck off, Dave. Like, Well, like, she just, literally says, like, he's never like this. He's never like this. <laughs> well, well, no, but she actually says, like, I'm a little worried because he's usually not this bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I get reinforcing his clear, like, interest in her. Mm-hmm. But he, so he tries to run them down with his car. It doesn't happen. They go back to Dill's place for a nightcap, a little drinky poo. And then he shows up and, th- and they have a confrontation and she throws all the shit out the window and throws his goldfish out and he calls her a murderer. Uh, so for his part, Dave, despite his scuffiness, really does seem to have a thing for Dill, but certainly so does Argus, mm-hmm. a.k.a. Jimmy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she gives him what I can only assume to be a fantastic blowjob. Oh, she blows him. Oh, she blows him hard and well, and he enjoys it, other than when he kind of rolls his head over and sees the many pictures of Jody <laughs> around the apartment. He's well, kind of reminded, oh, yeah. <laughs> What's this guy's girlfriend? What's this, this guy's girlfriend? Uh, so he's a bit weirded out by that, but he continues on, and the next night, they get together. Tonight's the night, Brendan. Jason, this is it. This is the big moment. Are you ready? Uh, so they, they're kind of getting hot and heavy, and she leaves and comes back in lingerie, and they're getting ready, and she slowly takes off her top and takes the dress off, and the camera pans down, and as it pan down, we see some very tiny tits, and then we see a penis. Sleepaway camp. 64 minutes in, we have a penis shoved in our face. 64 minutes in, we have a penis, ladies and gentlemen. We and have it turns out that Jay Davidson and Dill are actually a, uh, a male by birth. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is... Uh, shocking, I would say. This to... is the secret to the crying game. This is the secret to the crying game. And I gotta say, even having known what's coming, yeah. it works. <laughs> it's been interesting up to this point, kind of watching the movie with the knowledge that this is coming and seeing how... Because th- th- there's a point where Cole says to... Um, Oh, uh, yeah, he says, says to uh, Fergus in the bar, he's like, oh, listen, uh, did you know that she's... Uh, and then he's cut off and she's coming on stage and he just goes... Uh, she's on right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, well, and, and yes, yeah, so we got to get, so obviously Fergus's initial reaction is he is revolted. He's revolted. He, and um, he kind of accidentally backhand. He pushes yeah, he, her to the way. He just, he, he gets up real fast. He clocks her with his hand and, and draws some blood. Uh, not necessarily like out of anger, but it's just like he's just running to the bathroom and he starts retching. Uh, again, <laughs> this movie came out two years before Ace Ventura, Pet Detective. This is a much more sensitive this reaction. This is a much more sensitive reaction. I mean, it's still, it's still not a great reaction, no. but it's much better than everybody retching, like at the end of that movie. But it's um, also a reaction where you're like, you're like, is he 
reacting like that because that's his true reaction, or is he reacting like how he thinks he should react? Well, he's he's, rea- he's shocked. He's shocked. He, he he's not what he expected. And so, anyways, and she responds by saying like, "Oh, I thought you knew." Like, I, and she like she's not mad or anything, but she's more like, "Look, I thought you knew. Why were you in the bar?" Just not in the face. I'm not a young thing anymore. <laughs> Actually, let's let's play the clip of just after right. this moment because sure. this is a, their her kind of reaction to the whole thing yeah. once he starts like retching and everything. It's all right, Jimmy. I can take it. Just not on the face. See, I'm not a young thing any longer. It's funny the way things go. Don't you find that, Jimmy? Never the way you expected. I'm sorry. You mean that? Don't go! Say something! And I want to say here, too, I think the real reason is that... Now, you may ask, of course, watching this, why... Maybe why wouldn't she mention this? But I think the real reason is, like, we get... um, That bar is is a gay bar. Yeah. Or at least, like, you know... Knowing... Knowing what we know going into it, like again, most people may not have, well, may not have, wouldn't have known this because they made a point in the U.S. to tell people not to reveal the twist of this movie. But much like Psycho, much like Psycho, um, but like going into this, you may not have noticed it, but like going in with that knowledge, you see, like it's clear that the bar has got some gender fluid people there. You see some dudes yes. sitting there that clearly have makeup and lipstick on. Like you mm-hmm. get the sense that this is a much more uh, liberal environment, maybe than other bars. And what it's in your typical British pub. Yeah. So I mean, I think that's the reason behind why you know dill maybe isn't super open about like yeah. oh by the way just so you know like yeah but also because he just assumes that or she just assumes that uh, pardon me she just assumes that people knows the deal because mm-hmm. they're at this bar and you know it's the kind of people that hang out there well exactly so so again she's not mad about it but she also i think is is regretful that she didn't say anything she's definitely she seen this assumed. reaction before yeah she's seen this reaction before and for any trans person i have to imagine that this is um you know this is a big moment um and it's why if you're familiar with the uh, young trans girl that's on TLC, Jun- uh, Juno? No, not Juno. What's her name? Jazz. That's it. Jazz. Oh, okay. Ja- well, one of her parents' things to her is like, look, you got to be open with people about this because you could get killed. Like, you could get hurt or you could get killed because people can react badly to these situations. So you got to be open with people from the beginning or shit's going to, shit could go bad. Yeah. You know, you don't want to, you don't want to trick people i mean and then that's an unfortunate stereotype that trans people have gotten uh especially you go back to the 80s and stuff you go back to eddie murphy stand up and, and to be fair let's th- eddie murphy probably likes it in the bum let's be fair maybe and that's fine eddie that's fine do whatever you want to do just do comedy actually you need he's gonna because he's gonna be on netflix but that's a different story well, Eddie Murphy, I think, overcompensating, I think we can agree. So, 64 minutes into the movie, we get a penis in the face, yeah. and we learn the secret uh, that Dill is uh, actually originally a man, but she, but she is transgendered, so I will continue to refer to her as she. Oh, yeah, 100%. Um, so, are we, are we okay, so is that... Now, th- keep in mind, Jason and I are both two ignorant white two straight... Two ignorant straight white males from White Canada. straight cisgender males. That's right. So, we, I believe, so, I believe the correct term is... Transsexual, right? I believe transgendered. Transgender is generally the term I hear. Uh, okay. I mean, I, it depends on who you. I've talk also to. heard transvestite. I don't know if that's the well, word. Transvestite is specifically a term to men who enjoy dressing as ladies. Okay, so that is. Okay. Like drag queens would be transvestites. Eddie Izzard, uh, for a long time, considered himself transvestite, although actually in recent years, I think he said that he is transgender. Okay, well, let's say transgender or trans. Yeah, trans. That absolutely. way we are covering our bases. We're covering our bases and it's all good. <laughs> 
But he leaves. He also confused, and he dreams of Jody again. And it's funny. I don't know, like... I got the impression from the, the dream he has of Jody where Jody kind of like looks at him and smiles and points at him. It's almost like, ha ha, fuck you, uh, kind of. But also maybe it's like, hey, you've seen, now you know. like. But I mean, with the whole thing where Jody had to pee and he was taking his dick out, they yeah. kind of introduced a homoeroticism yeah, but, from the beginning of the film. But that's the thing, is it is it ultimately, uh, um, Dill is transgendered. So Jill, Dill, is basically, Dill is a woman, mm-hmm. even though she has a penis. Mm-hmm. She's a woman. Bor- born a man. Born a man, but yeah. is clearly a woman in yes. his body. So he returns to the bar soon after to see her. But she doesn't really want to talk. So he leaves. Uh, so she takes off out of the bar and goes home. He follows her, again, continuing his tradition, follows her and writes a note and says, uh, uh, Dill, I'm sorry I hurt you. Uh, Jimmy. Jimmy. And so uh, he's still interested, clearly. And she shows up at work a little bit later and brings him tea and they have a nice chat and kind of, you know, seem that there's still something going on there. I don't know that he's... I think he's confused. Mm. I don't know that he's fully on board. No, I don't know but, if but, he knows but, that he's actually... I don't know if he thinks he's actually in love with he her. Doesn't, yeah, he doesn't... He's, he's obviously confused, but, he, but he's interested enough to kind of keep things going. He doesn't just cut her off and dump her in the street kind of thing. Kind of. Yeah. He's kind of... He's like reticent, but he's like, yeah, let's maybe, maybe we can hang in out. His, in his mind, I think he's kind of, he thinks he's like humoring her at least. Yeah. By being like, like keeping her along kind of thing. Because yeah. he keeps telling her to stop calling him darling and babe yeah. and honey. <laughs> and she's like, stop, don't call me darling. And he's like, I'm sorry, honey. Yeah. She's like, oh, <laughs> she's I'm, like sorry, I'm sorry, babe. Honey. Oh, I'm sorry, sorry honey. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Um, but unfortunately for Fergus, it turns out that his old uh, comrade in arms, Jude, she's not dead. She shows back up. Mm, and I want, I, I'm going to play this as well. Please do. Because Miranda Richardson, we didn't talk about, enough about mm. Miranda Richardson yet. She is wonderful. She Great is uh, crazy. Intimidating <laughs> as fuck. Intimidating as fuck. And just like, just enough off kilter to be believable. Um, also, by the way, you talked about Tony Slattery. Mm. She's also from a mostly comedy background. Nice. Yeah. Uh, oh, right. Uh, Miranda Richardson. I feel like I know that. Notably name. hosted one of my favorite SNL episodes. I don't oh, know why nice. that's notable, because it's just me, but <laughs> I love that episode, and she's really good. All right, here we go. Book me, Fergus. Am I to take it that's an omen? We had a court-martial in your absence. They wanted to put a bullet through your head. I pleaded for clemency. Said we should find out what happened first. So what did happen? He ran. I couldn't shoot him in the back. I tried to catch him. He made it to the road and got hit by a Saracen. So you did fuck up? Yes. But you know what the thing is, Fergus? No, what is the thing? You vanished quite effectively. Became Mr. Nobody. You've no idea how useful that could be. What do you mean? We've got some plans here. And we'll need a Mr. Nobody to execute them. No way, Jude. I'm out. You're never out, Fergus. Maybe you don't care about yourself. Consider the girl, Fergus. The wee black chick. Her out of this. Jesus, Fergus, you're walking cliche. You know, we won't leave her out of it. But I'm glad to see you, Kerr. 
So he's been uh, court-martialed in absentia, and she pleaded for clemency, and basically it boils down to he's going to have to help them assassinate a British judge, mm-hmm. uh, and that's that. Yep. And, and if they do, and if he doesn't, they're basically going to kill her. Because they know about that black girl that he's with, mm-hmm. and they'll take care of her. You know, because I mean, with with that sort of thing, you got to get to people's family members. Going after them, well, whatever. But you go after their family, or friends, or significant others, mm-hmm. then it's a problem. So she's, uh, yeah, she, she's ready to cause some shit. So Dill and and Fergus continue to hang out, and at one point after this has happened. Fergus has to ask her to cut her hair. Uh, he wants her to cut her hair and kind of present herself as a man, but he won't tell her why. Mm-hmm. But she's like, well, will you be with me if I do that? And he's like, yes. <laughs> yeah, he basically is trying to hide her. He's trying to her hide her, yeah, because they do have a confrontation. Jude shows up at the Metro. Mm-hmm. and He's following a, them. He's following them. She's, doing, she's pulling a Fergus. Yeah, exactly. She's <laughs> better at his game than he is. <laughs> so she follows them. They have a bit of a confrontation there, and... I think Dill thinks that she's just some woman from his past, which she is, or that he's having, or that he's sleeping with her. Or he's or sleeping with her currently, yeah. which she is not. No, um, they did have a thing before, though. I think they hinted at. Yeah, yeah. But um, so as yeah, so they're doing the haircutting thing. Yeah. Go on. <laughs> doing the haircutting thing, and he takes her to a hotel, and it's like we got to stay here because you need to be safe, and so. He falls asleep there, but he then he wakes up, and I think she's taken off, and he goes looking for her, and he finds her wandering around near her her apartment, hammered. She just got a bottle of like whiskey or something, and she just got completely smashed. She's fucked. So he decides to at least she wants to go back home, so they go back to her apartment, and he lies her down on the bed, and she eats a bunch of pills. Mm. Why not? She's drinking already. Why not get extra fucked up? Takes a bunch of pills, and well, she basically at this point she takes a bunch of pills, and. He finds this, he's like, you know what, this is the best time to do it. And he confesses to her that he knows Jody. He knew him. He was, in fact, the one that captured him and explained that, you know, he didn't kill him, but he was going to, and then Jody was killed by the tank. And she's so fucked up, she barely reacts. She's like, oh, you know my Jody. Oh, you you killed him. Oh. He's like, aren't you you gonna, like, bring my hair out or shoot me or something? And she just kind of puts her hand like a gun up to his head and goes like, bang. Yeah. And yeah, but that's seems, but that's a whole different situation the next day. Yeah, she seems too fucked up to understand. But so they fall asleep, and when she wakes up before him, she uh, ties him to the bed. Mm. So this is the day. This is the day that he has to go assassinate the British judge. But she ties him to the bed before he wakes up, and so he is uh, he's stuck there. And she demands that he tell her Everything. he loves her, yeah. and that he will never leave her. And he does. And she said, and oh, it's this very sad, oh, it's heartbreaking because she says, listen, I know you're lying, but I just wanted to hear it. Yeah. Exactly. And that fucks up the whole judge assassination thing. So naturally, so they, the Jude and Peter, I believe. Yes. Yeah. They're like, well, fuck, we have to do it. They have to do it. So they go and, and Peter just grabs the machine pistol out of her purse. And she's like, no, don't. And then he, so he just runs out, runs up to the judge and fucking opens fire and shoots the judge. And then the guards shoot him. And then he shoots the guards and the guard gets the last shot in. And then there's like at least three bodies on the ground by the time everything is said and done. The judge is dead, but Peter's dead as well. But hey, Jude, don't let me down. And she doesn't because she goes to see... Fergus. Fergus. She immediately wants to go deal with Fergus. Right. Because uh, he fucked up. So now she's super pissed and she heads for Dills and stomps in looking to kill Fergus. 
Dill grabs Fergus's gun and shoots Jude numerous times, informing her that she knows Jude was the one that lured Jody in with her sexuality. It's it's a brutal bunch it's of gunshots. Like she she shoots her in like the leg and the arm and like keeps shooting her and then finally finishes her off with a shot. To the There's neck. some like fine squib worker. <laughs> yeah, no, this this was a brutal fucking scene. And yeah, it is very effective because of it. Um, so she points the gun at Fergus, but says, but then she won't kill him, saying that Jody wouldn't allow it to happen. Right. She probably wouldn't. No, because I... No. She then puts the gun in her own mouth, but Fergus pulls that out of her mouth and sends her off and is like, look, you got to get out of here. you got to hide out. I'll deal with this. We've got a body on the ground. You you get out of here. And he so takes she, the rap. He takes the rap. So she agrees. She takes off. He wipes the gun down of her prints and holds onto it and basically sits there and waits for his fate. So we fade out, and a few months later, we fade in, and we're out of prison. And we see Dill walking into this prison, where it's clear that this is like the meeting room, where all the prisoners get to meet with their families and stuff. She walks through up to the glass, and there, sitting there, is old Fergus, who she still calls Jimmy, but then he has to remind her that his name is actually Fergus. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's still telling her to stop calling me darling yeah, and sweetie and all yeah, that yeah. stuff. But there's clearly still something there, yeah. and she's like, well, I'm going to have to wait for you, because <laughs> yeah. he's in there for a little while. Yeah, she uh, says something like 2,000 days or something. It's like yeah, six, seven, six yeah, years. Yeah, exactly. It's a little while anyways. He'd be out long by now, but uh, yeah. So <laughs> You mean in 2019? Yeah, he'd, be, he'd been out for a long time. Yeah, they're now. together now. Yeah, so she says she's going to wait for him, and uh, she asks him why he fell for her, and he just says, what's in my nature? And she goes, what do you mean by that? And hey. then we end the movie with him telling the story of the scorpion and the frog yet again. To her, and it fades out to the strains of Lyle Lovett's uh, Stand By Your Man. Stand by your man. Which seems a little comedic uh, of a thing to play in a movie that is primarily about a trans person, but you know what? Hey. But I wonder if, like, the reason they picked... I mean, I wonder if there's... like This seems like the reason why they pick Lyle Lovett other yeah. than, rather than Dolly Parton, you know exactly. what I mean? Like, exactly. Well, Jason, we've got some background to get into in this movie, but mostly I want to deep di- dive deep into it. Sure. But, um... Let's talk about the Crying Game song itself, sure. the, the title song of the film. And I just want to say this. I wrote this down. Um, it's basically the, the, the basic meaning of this song. Uh, this song is a lyrical handbook for heartbreak. Mm. Kiss, fall in love, break up, cry. The singer has repeated this pattern so often he feels like he's an expert in, quote, the crying yes. game. So it's like a, a good theme for the overall movie because you can feel like Dill has been through the ringer. She's Absolutely. been through many different relationships. She's had Jody. We don't know the extent of her relationship with Jody, mm-hmm. which I do definitely want to get into and question yeah. a few things. But she's singing this. I mean, she's lip syncing the song. It's not obviously not Jay Davidson is not singing. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, it's just a kind of a cool theme for that for that uh, for that moment. Now. Neil Jordan, our old friend Neil Jordan, mm. uh, Roman Polanski supporter himself. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. Unfortunately. Uh, Neil Jordan first drafted this screenplay in the mid-1980s under the title The Soldier's Wife. Uh, but then he shelved the project after a similar film was released. So the story was inspired by a 1931 short story uh, called Guests of the Nation. And in this story, they, we have IRA soldiers developing a bond with their English captives who they are ultimately forced to kill. Yeah. So, you know, it's basically about, like, how this was a mistake. Yep. They should not have d- developed this bond because they ultimately will have to kill their, cap- their uh, captives. The original draft had the character of Dill as a woman, as in, like, born a woman, not transgender. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, but Neil Jordan had the idea to make the character a transgender. I actually, somebody wrote down transvestite, but that is not accurate. <laughs> so uh, Neil Jordan uh, sought to begin production of the film in the early 90s, but found it very difficult to secure financing. Mainly, uh, it wasn't even necessarily the subject matter. Uh, at the time, he had had a couple of like flops like box office flops. So they weren't real big on securing money for this movie. Plus he was making something that was kind of, you know, out there even beyond the transgender aspect of it, the, the IRA aspect of it and casting, um, sympathetic characters in the role of IRA members would maybe not play as well in uh, merry old England. Right. Our old friend, Stanley Kubrick, Mm. uh, was a friend of Neil Jordan. So that should tell you what kind of person Neil Jordan might've been, uh, or might be, he's still alive. Uh, Stanley Kubrick told Jordan it would be impossible to find a black guy who could play a woman. It's going to be impossible to find someone who can pull off uh, playing a woman, but yet have the reveal be surprising. Yeah. Like he said, it's going to be impossible. But so uh, Neil Jordan said his friend, director Derek Jarman, mm-hmm. who actually has a movie on this list that we'll eventually get to. Uh, was the one who kind of helped him find this actor, this actor, Jay Davidson, who w- was working in a bar. Yeah. This is not an act. He was not an actor mm. or he might've been like an act, like trying to be an actor, but had not more of a model. Yeah. Had not been in anything. No. And you know, they described Jay Davidson as he was, he was a gay man. He wasn't transgender or no. anything, but he was kind of androgynous. Yeah. Uh, he describes himself that way. Uh, he said a lot of people have mistaken him for a woman, even if he's not trying to like give off that impression. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he said um, he basically went sought this actor out and brought him on board. Um, <laughs> Stephen Rhea also chimed in here and said, you know, if Jay hadn't been a completely convincing woman, my character would have looked really stupid. Yeah. Because like, yeah, you could say like, you know, I don't want to. Now I'm trying to approach this as yeah. delicately as possible. But, you know, sometimes when someone is transgender, you yeah. notice it more than others. It's, sometimes it's obvious and sometimes it's not. Right. So Stephen Rhea's point was it had to be not obvious yeah. because my character would not be someone who would probably be that progressive in the first place. Yeah, no, especially an Irish Catholic. Come yeah, on. he would not be pursuing that kind no, of relationship. Absolutely not. He has to be sort of quote unquote kind of tricked. You know what I mean? Well, tricked, but I, I look at it as like this movie is about a guy who falls in love with a person. Yes. And then and then realizes that, oh, wait, the gender isn't what I expected it to be. Right. Um, so do you know the moment, this is really, this is really funny. The moment that Neil Jordan kind of knew, so he was kind of, when they were filming the movie, he's like, I think he's good for this, but like, I'm still having back and forth thoughts on like, if people are going to accept this, if they're going to believe it, the moment he knew that Jay Davidson was perfect for this role, Jay Davidson got sick on the set, a stomachache or something. Doctor came on set and just said, do you think maybe you could be pregnant? <laughs> so that is the moment. Still, so Davidson's still in costume, and he said, "Wow, that at that point, I know I was like, I, I've got it." Yeah. <laughs> uh, Davidson, and of course, we'll talk about the awards later. But Davidson became the first British person of color to be nominated for an Oscar. Wow. Uh, also, you know, followed that up by being uh, playing the sun god Ra in Stargate. Mm-hmm. And then that's it. That's yeah. That's uh, pretty much it. Jay Davidson, of small roles, but beyond that. Yep. Jay Davidson was basically like, I'm done with acting. Yeah. And Neil Jordan said, you know, I'm kind of glad that happened because I didn't want Jay to end up in that I'm a celebrity, get me out of here kind of role. Yeah, no, absolutely. Role. He, he, I, and I believe he was not a fan of the kind of the attention that it brought. In the not way at it all. Did, so that was part of the reason why he got out. 
Yep. Uh, so he actually did show up at the 25th anniversary screening of the film mm. to kind of explain his retirement from acting. But he hasn't done anything since 1994. I mean, I'm sure he's done lots of stuff, just not acting. Yeah. <laughs> no, he hasn't done anything. Uh, so the film went into production. I don't know if you know this, but there, it, this thing was made on a shoestring budget. Mm-hmm. Like, they, it was so, so bad that they had to keep constantly like searching for small tiny bits of money anywhere they could find it the, the guy when well, i believe one of the producers owned a shop and would mm-hmm. go to the cash register to get money just so he'd keep paying the crew wow like that's how badly they were hurting for money uh the costume designer had an extremely small budget to work with and most of the time just gave jay davidson her own clothes yeah. which thankfully fit her yeah. <laughs> uh fit him i guess yeah. we can talk because so, jay davidson so of course the studio wants him to cast a woman. Yeah. And Neil Jordan was like, no, I want to challenge myself and get someone who can do this role properly. So I think that's interesting. Yeah. 1992, of course, the studio is like, you're going to have to cast a woman or else it won't be believable. Well, and he was smart because obviously this this point got this movie a ton of attention. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe not so much in England, but definitely when it made its way to America. Now, there is a criticism of Neil Jordan here that I want to read because this is from kind of like a gender study. Uh, it's a thing called is a study called gender variance in the arts, and it kind of says that Neil Jordan maybe is not being one hundred percent. Maybe this is not the one hundred percent best take, and I think mm-hmm. we should talk about that a little bit yeah, because um, because we talked about it a little bit before we started. But I think with any first or at least early take on something in a film, like obviously you know you get Tootsie was mm-hmm. kind of a big thing. Uh, some like it hot. Uh, then you have like, you know, the first portrayal of like gay people, the first portrayal of like, you know, black people in film, mm-hmm. first positive portrayal of black people who we should say like, guess who's, guess who's coming to dinner, stuff like that. Yeah. It's never going to be a perfect take the first time, no. but it's, it opens the doors. So I think that's what this is. I think it opens the doors a lot mm-hmm. to like, you know, here we kind of open the floodgates. Now everyone can kind of come in and expand upon that. And, you know, Neil Jordan, a straight white dude making movies. So, you know, you get lots of other people that are, that are making movies like that, too, that kind of obviously know more about that. Um, not saying Neil Jordan shouldn't have made the movie, but I'm just saying, you know, it allows other people that have more of a right to, <laughs> to yeah, make yeah. it. Absolutely. Um, so this gender study. Uh, so I just want to read what it says here. Um it, she, she talks about a moment in the script where it says the kimono falls to the floor gently with a whisper. The camera travels, the camera travels with it. And we see in a close up that she is a man. Mm-hmm. And she said about this quote, she said, note that it does not say she's a transsexual or a woman with a penis. Moreover, many critics and reviewers have described Dill as a man or as a transvestite, quite possibly because Dill is never described in the film as a transsexual. Although surely the uh, first assumption for a man with a uh, with a penis who is living as a female would be that she is a preoperative transsexual. Mm. She is certainly not a transvestite, for she never switches to male clothing until compelled to do so by Fergus. Absolutely. When Fergus says to the barman that Dill is, quote, not a girl, this is largely because he's inexperienced with transsexuals. And she says this would seem to be the case with Neil Jordan as mm. well. Yeah. So it's more of like an ignorance thing. Yeah, I mean, in, I mean, for 1992, yeah, the, the, the vocabulary hadn't become as widespread. People just didn't quite get it. Like, Right. Now. I just think it's interesting to get to get that perspective too, because yeah. you know a lot of people say this is a very progressive film, yeah. which it is. It is absolutely. But you definitely have that other side of like yeah. it's still not quite hitting the marks. Well, some when, of the marks. When you're making a movie that is primarily about a trans person and or, or 
majorly about a trans person and you don't have a trans person in the cast or in, in the production or in the creative, it seems kind of strange, you know? Mm-hmm. You think you'd want that legitimate pers- perspective from someone who has been through it, you know? So I said shoestring budget. I mean, budget of $2.3 million. So it's not like, you know, 100000 but it's a small budget for a yeah. studio film. Uh, box office, though? It rakes in $62.5 million. But so we must it, understand that that movie comes from America, because in Britain, the movie was not particularly successful. Not right? a hit. No. Not a hit and, at all. And part of the reason that they attribute to that was there had been an IRA bombing right around the same time. So Brits may not have been in the mood for a movie where an IRA guy is kind of the protagonist, you know? <laughs> right. Oh, there you go. I didn't even know that. Yeah. Jason bringing the heat. There we go. Okay, so let's let's dive into this movie a little bit more. Fergus himself, he's in the IRA. He's a volunteer member of the IRA. How do you think he gets roped into this whole thing? Because there's a, there's a moment in the movie where even Jody questions him. He says, like, what do you believe in? And he says, that you shouldn't be here. He's like, that's it? He's yeah. like, yep. And he doesn't really expand upon that. Do you think he's the kind of person that, like, maybe... You, you said, obviously, the... Irish had good reason to be upset yeah. at first. Like, you know, the British are kind of... Impe- like Still have reason to be upset. Yeah, like coming into their kind of... Yeah. Pushing their way in. As they did for hundreds of years before then. Do you <laughs> think this is a guy that the, at a young age sees this, gets very upset, and is kind of roped into the IRA thing? Because he I, doesn't strike me as a violent person. No, I, I, I think this is a guy who grew up an Irish Catholic and was just around it. And was just... He was just... That was the perspective that he saw, and that was the perspective that was drilled into his head, whether it was, you know, in his social life at school or in church. And it, it probably seemed like a natural thing to him that at some point he would join up with the PRRA or one of those resistance groups to fight the British. Because, you know, regardless of whether you have any religious uh, 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 skin in this game, you, you even if you didn't, you could be just from the point of like, we don't want the British here. We feel they're occupying what is rightful Irish territory. Mm-hmm. And in the and obviously the that's the Catholic perspective since the South was primarily Catholic and a lot of people in the South believe that the whole island should be Ireland. And I don't blame them. I think that seems to make sense. But the British are there, and that's how it is. I also want to uh, also get into how this movie starts. Yes. The first, the opening song of this movie, Jason, is mm. When a Man Loves a Woman. Which I noted was in, I feel like was in a lot of 90s movies, uh, especially ones that were calling back to that era, like the 50s, 60s kind of stuff. Even though this movie is not that, it is a contemporary movie. I kind of thought it was nice, though, yeah, that it, was, it started with When a Man Loves a Woman, because yeah. right away the movie is saying, yeah, she's a woman. Yeah. Like, we're going to stand by this kind of idea. And and we even get a moment later, not to jump ahead again, but we get a moment way late in the movie when Fergus actually talks to Cole, the bartender, Jim Broadbent, yeah. and says, she's not a girl. Cole just kind of says, uh, uh, what does he say? Something along the lines of like, well, whatever you think or something yeah. like that. Like, he's just like, yeah, he yeah, just basically, you think, yeah. yeah, he just basically, he just Sorry. basically like shoots it down like, oh, well, you have a small definition of what that is. Yeah. Um, I wrote down that the other song they could have started with was Lola. A little on those if they were trying to hide the yeah. uh, secret. We take a walk on the wild side also. <laughs> now the girls go to the hop, 
But it starts with when a man loves a woman. And also, I feel like it starts very non-traditionally, the shot they use. Mm-hmm. Like, it's shoot under the bridge. You see this whole, like, fairground thing. And it should be, like, a happy kind of, like, fairground, but it looks very sad. Yeah, it's kind of the way it's shot in the slow pan. It's very kind of depressing. It's almost. very depressing. Yeah. Even when we go into the fairground, it looks very depressing. It's a very chintzy fair. And I'm wondering if that's also budget stuff. Maybe. And we're breaking taboos right off the bat. I mean, maybe not a huge taboo. It's 1992, so it hasn't been it hasn't been not a taboo for very long. But right from the beginning, we have an interracial couple. Well, and just based, making out based on what Forrest Whitaker says about being in Northern Ireland, like one can assume that maybe it's not the best place for black folks. If he's getting the N word thrown at him by locals, then maybe that is a controversial thing to do at this time. For sure. Um, but I just mean in terms of like the movie, like movies. Yeah. It wasn't a common thing no, in movies not yet. As much. But yeah, no, I know what you mean. Yeah, he's just openly with this white lady. Uh, And at first, when you see her kind of look around nervously, not knowing what's going to happen, you think, oh, maybe she's just looking around nervously because she's worried they're going to get attacked for being like an interracial couple. I I love all the early foreshadowing to Dill Mm. and the reveal because Forrest Whitaker says... He asked Jody about about Jude coming on to him, and he says she's not my type anyway. Yeah. <laughs> it's a very like, oh okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, so does he cheat on her? Yeah, I think he says he just he because because I think for, uh, Fergus even asked him at one point like, why would you cheat on her? Like, he's like, well, she she seduced me is yeah, his answer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He wants to put it on the woman. But I'm wondering because. She's clearly mad at him a little later for the fact that he even went to the war. Mm. And I'm wondering if they broke up right before that. Because, yes, she has photos of him everywhere. Yes, she says she loves him. He says he loves her. But he also seems to be like, oh, I'm going to get my fuck on. Like, as soon as he gets there. I wonder if that was like, you leave, we're done. Like, I can't handle you being away. Could be, yeah, it could be a reaction. It could just be even that soldier's attitude because that attitude can be prevalent in in, uh, that type of job, you know? Mm -hmm. I also thought maybe it was possible that he was not okay with the fact that she was transsexual. Possibly. But... I feel like that's negated later when she says like, oh, he really loved me and stuff. Yeah. But then again, she thinks the same thing about Fergus yes. later. So, But I, I think if she's gotten to the point where she has pictures of him all over the apartment, it must have been pretty serious. Yeah. Yeah. Because I'd be kind of creeped out if it wasn't that serious and she had all those pictures of him. <laughs> Just a shrine? Yeah. 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 Do you think... Okay, so we're getting, in, we're getting a little into this here, into the uh, the dynamic between Fergus and Jody because they're having their, their bonding stuff. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like their relationship starts off on a genuine foot, or do you think he's using a tactic at first? No, I think I think Jody is absolutely using a tactic. I think Jody because he says his name a lot. Yeah, he says his name over and over and over again, and that's a that's a thing you hear about it, it uh, dealing with like you know someone that's going to hurt you or yeah. someone's going to kill you. It's like use their name or use your name and as much as possible exactly. humanize everybody. humanize yourself, humanize them. And yeah. So do you, th- so you say you, you do think it starts off as a tactic. Well, Jody's a trained soldier in the British army. So right. he definitely has a procedure in his mind that he's been trained for to do in this situation. And I imagine that's one of those things is try to establish some sort of rapport with your captor. Do you think it gets genuine or do you think, I think it's so. always a tactic? In the no, back I, of his head? I, I think, I think it's a tactic at first, but I think he does kind to come to see that Fergus for being involved in all this shit doesn't seem like a terrible guy mm-hmm. like I think he genuinely does like him uh, uh, despite everything that's going on as much as one can when one has been captured by a fella 
Uh, now, obviously, it's not it's not quite to the level of Stockholm syndrome. He's not sympathizing with their aims, but right. clearly you that know, that is interesting that they didn't go that route. Yeah, no, he just he he sees that. I mean, he's not there long enough. He's only there for three days, right? So it's not really long enough to mm-hmm. indoctrinate someone. But uh, yeah, no, I, th- I think he understands. He sees the human behind Fergus's eyes. Yeah, so I I just th- I think that's interesting. It start. I th- I agree with you. I think it does start off as a tactic. Mm. Um, but yeah, there de- definitely seems to be something that kind of blossoms in a very uh, I want to say borderline homoerotic way. Like I think it does get a, especially in that scene where he's peeing. Yeah, I think they're tr- they're trying to tell us something. You think you think Jody was just trying to get his rocks off? You I think that's I, what that was about. I think he was trying to get that Irish hand on his dick. Is what I'm saying. <laughs> He's oh, got that, that pale Irish hand. Forrest has got that BDE, you know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? Did you notice, I don't know if this is anything, but when she's, I don't know if this is anything, but did you notice later on when Dill is throwing out that scuzz bag, Dave, like all his clothes and stuff and his goldfish, she throws uh, a teddy bear on the ground. Mm. And it's the same teddy bear that Jody buys Jude at huh. the at the fair. I didn't notice that. Yeah, so... I'm wondering if that's just a little visual clue to connect those two. Uh, maybe that's just something Jody. Maybe that's the same way Jody met fucking Dill. Maybe, maybe, like, maybe he's just really good at that carnival game that would award that prize. <laughs> um, and that's why that's one reason why I thought Jody maybe maybe left in disgust. I want to talk about the songs in the movie. Yeah, the songs in the movie. I think aside from the crying game, which we already talked about, songs in this movie are very symbolic of yeah. what's going on. Uh, of course, especially "Stand by Your Man," <laughs> but. Uh, even right after she sings the crying game, mm. there's another lady, and she's singing a different song. And I know, I know most of you have heard this song before, but I just want to play it for a little bit because this uh, speaks to me. This part of the song, I think, is basically telling you what's going on in the movie, much like many of the British movies we've done on this show before. Yeah. what i mean yeah the lyrics and that's the lyrics in that bit of the song and you hear that in the movie as that next lady is singing mm. while dill and fergus are having their conversation it's just really it's really cool to me because like it seems like such an innocuous detail that that's the other song the next person's singing yeah but then it kind of is like you know um uh, <laughs> you know ever since we met you had a hold on me you started something can't you see like it's very it's crazy very relevant it's very background thing that applies yeah um, the other song that I, I'm, I'm not going to play this clip, but the other song that I heard is, uh, White Cliffs of Dover. 
Yes. That somebody else sings. And I'm sure as a big war guy, you've heard the song many times. Oh, yeah. Well, the famous White Cliffs of Dover and the Battle of Britain and yep. all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And it's a very important song for, Brit- for Britain mm-hmm. because this was a song, you know, um, trying to raise the morale of the British because this was a very uh, terrifying moment during World War II where the yeah. Germans were moving in. They were, they were about to, I think they were about to occupy well, there, the there was Do- a, uh, Dover, was it? Well, there was a plan to invade England called Operation Sea Lion that was right. The table at one point, but they didn't end up doing it because they were too busy invading the Soviet Union. Uh, right, but they did bomb them. They used uh, the unguided V twos to uh, terror bomb the cities. You know the the Blitz. Yeah, it was bombings of the cities, and so they were under constant threat from the Germans. And it was only with the Battle of Britain that they drove them off for the time being. And this was a song that was basically telling everyone, "Don't worry, it'll all turn out okay in the yeah. end." Like. You, you, You'll wake up tomorrow and it'll be a new day. And, and if that doesn't work out, then we'll meet again. Don't know where, don't know when, but I know we'll meet again I, some other day. That is a different song. <laughs> uh, okay, another thing too, uh, just connecting another connection, connective tissue between Dill and Jody is that they refer to themselves in the third person a lot. Hmm. Like Jody does that yeah. at the beginning. He's like, "Oh, Jody's a good guy. Jody doesn't do that." And then Dill is doing that when she's talking through Jim Broadbent yeah. to uh, to Fergus. Do you think that's just a connective tissue? Like, yeah, or, yeah, well, yeah, or is that, or is that something where like they're trying to say, and I'm not agreeing or disagreeing, but they're trying to say as a trans person, um, she's, it's like an identity thing. See, I like to think of it as just that they were a couple and they have similar speech patterns that they've fallen into because they were together. Mm-hmm. That, I'm not, like I'm, I'm not, idea. I'm not saying I believe yeah, that. No, no. But I, I'm wondering I, if the movies has something like that. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know if the movies actually saying anything with it. To me, it just seems like a really good detail on their part that they, you know, to have them kind of have similar things like that come up in their speech because they must have been together for a little while. So that you know, you definitely have an impression on your partner mm-hmm. that way. Uh, we also get a uh, great, I, I love the subtle way, because when you first see the bar, we talked about how Fergus goes in and he doesn't know that it's this kind of bar, yeah. this gay bar, whatever, alternative lifestyle. Yeah. Um, when you first see the shots of it, you can't really tell. It's no. very subtle. But then when the, he goes in later, it's like boom in your face. Yeah. And, but if you're, but I, when I watched it the second time, because I'm a maniac and I watched these twice, when you watch the, rewatch the earlier scenes, you can see people in the background. Yeah. That you kind of would think, yep. huh. They belong there. They belong, yeah, it's like, it seems like a... But there's a good mix of people that yeah. you don't really get the idea that no, it's, it's, it's like... Not sh- it's not like you walk in and everybody's like dressed in feather boas and, and somebody's like, oh my God, get me a whiskey. <laughs> you know what? I'll give you an even more recent example. I mean, I guess this is like 20 years old now, but that, that made me think of Chasing Amy. Yes. When yeah. they go into the bar and it's not super obvious, it, but there's like a couple of... <laughs> There's that scene where Brody starts looking around. He's like, huh. He said, no, my favorite part of that scene (laughs) is that he looks, sees two girls kissing. Yeah. Looks, sees two girls getting real close. Looks, sees two girls just having a conversation. And and then he goes, oh, they're talking to each other. It must be a lesbian. Yeah. (laughs) Or or when he walks in, he's like, there's a lot of chicks in here. (laughs) Great movie. I love that movie. So good. (laughs) Holds up. Honestly, it's pretty like. I, I don't know that the actual conceit of the plot holds up in the modern era, but the movie's great. I don't think she's supposed to be uh, all out like a lesbian, no, though. That's the maybe. thing. That's the thing. If you consider her sort of gender, or not gender fluid, but like uh, flu- sexually fluid. Yeah. Some people are. I do like that in the end, uh, Dill goes back to 
looking like how she does. Yeah. Because when he she, when he cuts her hair and stuff, and she kind of, you know, puts her in a cricketer's outfit of all things. Yeah. And she starts looking, you know, a lot more fa- uh, masculine. Mm-hmm. Um, she looks out of place, obviously. Oh, absolutely. And to me, she still looks very feminine. Yeah. No, like absolutely. honestly, until <laughs> until I saw that dick, I was convinced. Yeah. Like, like she still looks. Uh, she just it doesn't really do anything. Like yeah. honestly. Honestly, I gotta say too, like almost everyone in this movie presents themselves as something they're not. Mm. Uh, Jody does it. Dill, Dill. I mean, you know, the, according to the movie, yeah. Dill does. Uh, Fergus definitely does it. Absolutely. Jude does it at the beginning of the film. Yeah. And she does it later when she's had a whole makeover look. Yeah, she got a whole different haircut and color of hair and everything. She looks a little bit like Julianne Moore. <laughs> she that yes, I yeah. wrote that down. She <laughs> Julianne Moore. She uh, she's she's beautiful. She's yeah. wonderful. I mean, she's not a good person in this movie, but anyway. Uh, yeah, so I think a lot of this is about lying about your identity, this mm-hmm. film. Uh, these characters. Yeah. I think that's all I have for... I mean, I, guess, I don't know that's a lot, but is there anything else you want to kind of... That we didn't really touch on? Besides, no, I, obviously, we'll get to the critique later, but like... No, I think we I think we hit all the points there. Okay. Well, let's talk about the awards then. How'd it do? Well, J- well Jason, it, it does go to the Oscars. But it only wins one award. Mm-hmm. It only wins for Best Original Screenplay. Wow. Yeah. See, I was convinced this movie won Best Picture, but clearly that wasn't the case. As you mentioned earlier, Unforgiven won that year. Well, here's the thing. It does get nominated for six Oscars. So, I mean, it does well. Yeah, no, it's, it's, and it's so impressive. One of the ones that it was nominated for and won was for Best Original Screenplay. I'm going to go through a little bit here, and you, you tell me... You, when you hear, you hear the nominees, you tell me uh, like who you think... Mm maybe who you think won, I guess. Yeah. Or just, you know, who you think should win yeah. based on these. So I'll just tell you first off, like I won't list the nominees, but Best, best Film Editing was the first one was nominated for. Yeah. Unforgiven won that year. Yeah. Uh, best Supporting Actor, Jay Davidson, was nominated. Mm-hmm. Other nominees include Jack Nicholson of A Few Good Men, Al Pacino, Glengarry Glenn Ross, okay, David yeah. Pamer of Mr. Saturday Night, and Gene Hackman for Unforgiven. That's a, that's a tough category. <laughs> that is a lot of awesome acting in one category. I yeah. Mean, uh, who won? I have to assume Gene Hackman won for Unforgiven. You are correct, sir. Uh, best Actor. Stephen Rhea was nominated for nice. an Oscar for Best Actor, which is I think is fantastic. I think Miranda Richardson was kind of overlooked here, honestly. Mm-hmm. But other nominees include Robert Downey Jr. for Chaplin, uh, Clint Eastwood for Unforgiven, Denzel Washington, Malcolm X, mm-hmm. and Al Pacino, Scent of a Woman. Yeah, another good mix of people. Uh, I feel like Malcolm X won that year. Al Pacino. Oh, did he? Really? Yeah. He finally got his Oscar. Uh, and of course, we know Unforgiven won Best Picture, but we'll go with Best Director. We've got James Ivory for Howard's End, Robert Altman for The Player, Martin Brest, Scent of Woman, and Clint Eastwood, Unforgiven. I think Clint Eastwood won that one, didn't he? He did, yeah. yeah. Unforgiven did very well that year. It's a great uh, movie. Yeah, I like it a lot. At the BAFTAs, however, nominated for Best Film, which was won by Howard's End. Mm-hmm. Never seen that movie. Me neither. Uh, nominated for Best Direction, which was won by Robert Altman for The Player. Mm-hmm. Nominated for Best Actor, which the BAFTA actually went to Robert Downey Jr. for Chaplin. Wow. It's a great movie. Well, I I mean, it's a good movie. He's great in it. (laughs) I've never seen it. I would like to see it. Uh, Best Supporting Actor, again, Gene Hackman. Best Supporting Actress. Okay, so this is where it gets interesting. Oh, actually, I say Best Original Screenplay, also nominated for, but Husbands and Wives wins that. And the only thing they won uh, at the BAFTAs was for Best British Film. Okay. However... Best Supporting Actress, Miranda Richardson, is nominated, Mm -hmm. but she is defeated by Miranda Richardson. (laughs) For what? For a a movie called Damage. Wow. (laughs) So she defeated herself. Good job, Miranda. Uh, Which I I think that's hilarious. I hope she told herself to go fuck herself. (laughs) (laughs) I want to congratulate all the other nominees except for myself. You can go fuck yourself. (laughs) 
No, I think that's really, uh, I think that's really funny. So, I mean, critics pretty much like this movie across the board, Jason. I mean, it's on the list for a reason. It's yeah. number 26 for a reason. Critics loved it. It made a ton of money in the U.S., but what did you think of it? No, I, I said this earlier, but I'll reiterate. Like, I literally only knew the fact that she was a man. Mm-hmm. I mean, because I, uh, you know, I grew up watching a lot of TV and comedy, and I remember specifically. I, I don't know if this was a specific reference to it, but I feel like the Naked Gun Thirty Three and yep. a Third there took is a, a yeah, take on this, where and we see the girl's penis, and then he runs and throws up in a tuba. You know, unfortunately. You mentioned Ace Ventura earlier. Yeah. That song also plays during that scene where Ace is puking in the oh, toilet. Does it? Yes, it does. <laughs> of course it does. So yes, that was a direct reference to that movie. Uh, and as I've said before, Ace Ventura, 80% still funny. Except uh, for that part. Except for that part and uh, the end of the movie with mm-hmm. the retching and everything. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so this movie clearly has had an influence too. But but I really like this movie because like I say, that was the only thing I knew about it and going into it and then watching it and realizing, oh, it's this drama and it involves the IRA and politics and... And then this guy falls in love, and 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 the the fact that she's a man is not even that big a deal, really, in the course of the movie. That doesn't the plot doesn't really hinge on that. Like it's not about like him worrying about what people think. It's not about like him trying to reconcile that. There's a little bit of that, but the movie's more about his story and dealing with the IRA and just the love story and and the connection to Jody and everything. Like I would say the IRA stuff is the plot. Yeah. But I think the stuff with Dill and the actual reveal and stuff, I think that's more of what the meaning of the film. Mm, mm. Like, I think that's the meat and potatoes of this movie. Uh, pardon the pun. <laughs> so, I mean, based on this and Mona Lisa, man, I want to see more Neil Jordan. Mm, like, yeah. I, I think he's a great filmmaker. I yeah, think he's like the grimy, like grungy kind of movies he makes based on these two. Maybe he doesn't always make movies like that, but I feel like uh, I feel like I want to see more of his movies. All movie star uh, uh, white men pursuing mixed race girls. <laughs> I'm assuming that's all of his movies. Yes, it has to be. <laughs> yeah. And again, Stephen Rhea's in like 10 of them. Yeah, well, he's great. He's wonderful. He is great. Uh, I like how the other movie we saw him in wasn't even a Neil Jordan No, movie. nothing, not even related at all. <laughs> no. So yeah, no, I'm, I, I, I love this movie. Mm, I think great. this is a fantastic movie. I think this is, uh, when I saw that it was 26, again, I hadn't seen this in a long time, so I thought, wow, that's high. But having watched this, like, I kind of get it. Like, yeah. it's, it's, it's a wonderful, it, you can't not have this on the list. No. This is like a groundbreaking movie for the subject matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the, you know, the talent involved. It's it's kind of like, and it's like, you know, when we watched English Patient, both of us had never seen it. And we were all, we were both told, oh, you've never seen The English Patient. Oh, it's an Oscar winner. Oh, it's a beautiful film. Mm. And this is kind of the reaction I kind of wanted to have. Yes, absolutely. English Patient. You know absolutely. what I mean? Like, we wanted it to be good. We, we didn't <laughs> want to hate that movie. We didn't want to hate fuck The English no. Patient. But this is one of those prestige pictures that really works for yeah, me. and still works after all this time. It's not just a flash in the pan. It doesn't It doesn't really ever feel like Oscar bait to me no. either, which I feel like is a, is a downside to a lot of these movies. Yeah. So yeah, I fucking love this movie. This is a fantastically made movie. I think it's even better than Mona Lisa, which I also really like. Mm-hmm. So it, yeah, it stays on the list 100%. Agreed. Go rent this movie at your local blockbuster. And then tell people that you know no, about, about the, the crying, crying game. Actually, Jason, I before we move on to the dice, mm-hmm. there is one more thing I want to say. This film, this film's cultural impact is astounding. Yeah. Which you mentioned, you know, unfortunately, Ace Ventura, Naked Gun. But there's one other little thing that it made its way into, and that is Saturday Night Live. Yes. Thank you.
It's time for Androgyny. Here comes Pat. <laughs> so, yes, the legendary Saturday Night Live character made into an even more legendary movie. Yes, absolutely. It's Pat. Great sketches, not so good of a movie, but I just think that's interesting that this is such a cultural milestone that arguably Saturday Night Live's most one of their most popular characters mm. of the time, <laughs> the whole sketch around it, and just the fact that it's Pat singing this song, the whole audience is like, we know exactly what this is. Yeah. Doesn't hurt that actually in that episode, Jason, my SNL nerddom is going to come through here because Miranda Richardson is the host. Nice. And Stephen Rhea makes a cameo during that opening scene, a <laughs> silent cameo, just sitting in the bar watching. Nice. And as, as Miranda Richardson is sitting in the bar watching, she is making faces at Pat, like licking her lips and everything. It's very funny. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, that's all I had to say. About I'm glad we got your SNL reference. I out. almost forgot, and I was like, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. But now Dole. is the time <gasps> where it's... we shall scale the White Cliffs of Dover and oh, find out what so... movie we are going to watch next week mm. via the magic of the immortal dice. Mm. And I believe it is my turn. It is your turn. So you get to roll. So what are we, we doing, Jason? We are going to roll these magic dice to find out randomly what movie we will watch for next week's podcast. Yes, this will give us the number on the BFI Top 100 that we are going to choose. Exactly. So I've got a 1s, 2d10s. 2d10s. I've got a 1s d10 and absolutely. a 10s d10. So we're going to roll the 10s first and then the 1s and that'll tell us and if we what get our movie's going to be. one we've already done, we're just going to do it again. Just roll again. So we're in the 90s. Oh, again? Oh, yes, we're in back 90s. down to the 90s. Well, we, okay, here we go. 93 will be 1986's Caravaggio, directed by Derek Jarman. That is just crazy. mentioned. Crazy, <laughs> yeah. So we're. this is a movie I know very little about. I don't know anything about it. All I know is that I saw a little, little, itty, bitty, little itty bit of it, and I'm, I'm nervous. Yeah. I don't know... I don't know what this is going to quite be, but we are, uh, we'll get into it. So 1986, so we're still fairly modern. Yep. Uh, Caravaggio, Derek Jarman. So we'll check that out next week. So make sure you tune in and listen to that. Please do. I thought we were, as soon as that 90 hit, I thought, carry on. This yeah, is your moment. Finally, we were going to do no, it. But no, it, the, the movie will never be on this podcast, Jason. Carry on is delayed gratification. <laughs> it's only going to, it's May of 2021. That's right. Here we go. <laughs> Um, but until that moment in time, you can follow us on the social medias. You can find us on Facebook. Just search for Screen Land Country. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter at BFI underscore pod. I thought you wanted to do that from now on. I want to do it all. <laughs> uh, and then, of course, you can also follow Jason on Twitter at Jason D. McLeod. That's M A C L E O D. You can read all about his lovely uh, odes to the Irish. And my manifesto. 
Oh my god, using the M word. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so check that out. Uh, of course, you know I have another podcast. What were they thinking? You should check that out. It's about about bad movies. Jason's been on there a few times. It's a lot of fun, folks. Oh, you're too much. You're a sweetie. You and Nathan, you're just the best. You sweetie. So until that moment, though, Jason, I just have to say to you. God save the queen. What? And God save the screen. And for screen and country, I'm Brendan. And I'm Jason. Do you know about the crying game? I know everything there is to know about the crying game. Do you have the cheat codes? I do. (gasps) Up, down, up, down, right, left, right, left, A, B, select, start. Sometimes it's hard to be a woman. Given all you love to just one man You'll have bad times He'll have good times Doing things that you don't understand But if you love him you forgive him Even though he's hard to understand And if you love him Oh, be proud of him Cause after all, he's just a man